Well, welcome to the roundtable discussion. This is episode 100 Wow! on RSS and uh, all the podcasts. This is episode 275 for all of the situation reports I've done, which is interesting. It is normally, we normally do this at four o'clock Pacific, five o'clock Arizona races time. And seven o'clock Eastern time, we're going to have, uh, as usual, we'll have a, a number of panelists that join. And unlike other shows, they join whenever the hell they want. And uh, it usually is uh, five minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes of cursory IT setup to get everybody dialed in and set up in the show. We will but, not uh, be constrained by format or professionalism. No, no, we will not be constrained by format. So we should see, be, should see Colonel Johnson here in a minute and then... Uh, Colonel Conrad following that, um, and I'm not sure who else is going to join. Just, just so everybody's clear, that this is an open invitation to a group of people that um, I communicate with on a regular basis, and I never know who's going to show up from week to week. I, I should, you know, have a, I should have a set schedule, but the problem is, like uh, Jordan Sather said he was going to be here this week. I don't know if he'll actually make it or not because, you know, he's got a show that he does at this time, Monday, Wednesdays, Mondays, Wednesdays, I think Thursdays, he streams to a number of platforms. So it's always a rotating list of folks who show up. Last week was a was a special bonus because we had uh, Colonel Piper that joined who normally is so busy can't. And we had, uh, you know, Matt Bracken, we had uh, Colonel Johnson, Colonel Conrad, of course, Troop. And it, it turns into a uh, pretty lively discussion when we have that many people. And then uh, Monday, I didn't do a set rep because I was on the big MIG, spent an hour and a half with those guys. And, you know, that was a pretty interesting experience because uh, this is my little, how do I say this? This is my little myopic world doing this those guys stream to like 40 or 50 different mediums across the planet they have a syndicated radio program they touch six million people across the planet i mean he's they they were lance was explaining it to me on monday before the show and, and just like us they have technical difficulties all the time right this was just one of the achilles heels of this whole operation is that you're relying on other technology and I use, you know, um, StreamYard to do the streaming part of this, and it streams to like four or five different things. I could go to Twitch. I could go to YouTube. I, I'm not going to mess around with YouTube because I know I'll get banned within like five seconds of streaming there. But we streamed, I, I could stream to, to Facebook and others. And for now, I'm just streaming to to Rumble. And part of that is this takes a, a considerable amount of time to get set up etc cetera, etc cetera. and by the way that was uh bear mccreary uh that was the colonial anthem that was uh the season two theme to battlestar galactica that was playing when we started and um it, it's uh i think it's appropriate today and i'm a sci-fi fan everybody knows that and uh galactica is one of my favorites um, especially because uh the ron moore version of if you want if you if you saw the 1978 version of of Galactica, that was, you know, that was typical 70s, 80s, you know, high drama. The the uh, the Ron Moore version of it that was done was in 2004 is a masterpiece for a, a variety of reasons. And hot, look, Ron Moore- Cylon chicks. Don't yeah. forget about the hot Cylon chicks. Well, yeah, the, the cybernetic, yeah, the, not that there's any correlation to today and the transhumanist agenda. But that said, um, 
the Ron Moore version of it, Ron Moore in and of itself is an asshat in real life, but that that entire series is, I, I think, a very, very good series. And it's not campy like Star Trek. It's dark. It reflects human nature. I mean, some of the storylines hokey, but you know, if you if you look at it just for purely entertainment, I, I think it's fantastic series. And um, I, you know, I I look at Star Wars. I look at Star Trek. I look at Galactica. I look at um, some of the other series that have come out, like The Expanse and um, Stargate SG One. I'm a Stargate fan too. Love SG One. Um, not not for the 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 you know the sci-fi aspect of it, but for the yeah. Sorry, bad. But you know. I was pissed that Ron Moore cast uh, Katie Sack off as Starbucks. Starbuck was a, a fighter pilot, man. Come on. I mean, go back to Tailhook. That's what Starbuck was. And, he, he, you know, he wasn't a, he, he wasn't a chick. I mean, sorry. I, I, I know I'm going to offend some women. I don't care. The, the reality is Starbuck should have been a dude. And Starbuck should have been a swashbuckling, you know, insensitive, hedonistic egomaniac that is fighter pilot come on man you're supposed to like push the aircraft to the edge of the envelope and then go a little bit faster to see how you know how fast it really is going to break apart come on but yeah i I, towards the end i actually warmed up to starbuck but starbuck is an angel sorry just not i just couldn't buy into that storyline but um anyway uh, that was the theme song to to season two and it's uh Oh, that was appropriate because look, we're seeing so much, so much BS right now. It is unbelievable the amount of disinformation and gaslighting that's going on. Like I I'm routinely forwarded just tons of information weekly that I can't sift through all of it, right? And uh yeah, whatever ad space balls, funny but wrong. So many different levels. Um, I've forwarded so much information every single week that I sift through and correlate. And on Monday night's conversation on the Big MIG, they asked me about China, and I steered around China for a bunch of reasons. I I had a two-hour conversation with Colonel uh, Lawrence Sellen. He's on Twitter. He's got a Substack. I've posted his his links in the last sit rep I did, as well as the last um, round table. You should go check him out. He changed my opinion on the situation with China and he is working with Chinese nationals here in the US to identify and dox every single Chinese Communist Party organization in the United States. And he's doing yeoman's work like Michael Yan, but he's not getting the press like Michael Yan is. and. You know, Michael Yan was uh, referenced in that that Tucker Carlson interview because he was the guy that escorted, um, I can't, Lance Weinstein or whatever his name was, the, the guy he escorted. Anyway, long story short, he was given credit for it. But I think the bigger the bigger aspect of China is something we should talk through tonight because there's a lot of disinformation around China. And I, and I, I was amazed. Um, at how much, because the feedback is amazing that I get during the week, right? And I was I was amazed at how much feedback I got where people truly don't understand the threat. And we spend a lot of time talking about the threat as a group, 
we we do. I mean, in addition to the number of people that post garbage in our in our channels. Uh, but that said, there's a couple of things about China that I've talked about, and I and the the first thing is the Chinese system doesn't have mechanisms for bailouts like we do. So economically, they have challenges. They have challenges within the country because of different factions, um, different languages, and different ethnicities across the entire country. It's not it's not hom homogenous. And then at the same time, they have challenges both in doctrine and in the way that they operate and the way they think. They have challenges with logistics because they're a net importer. They have challenges with with a number of different um, uh, aspects of their environment that are toxified. They have a lot of challenges that people don't realize. And, you know, I, when I'm asked, what do we do about it? The short answer in what we do about China is we need to deport every single Chinese communist promoting spy that's here. We need to arrest the spies that have compromised and taken advantage of our elected officials of our you know, county officials, state officials, national officials that have taken money, they all need to be arrested. There's a, there's a host of actions to clean this up. At the same time, all that's going on, we need to get rid of all of the military age males that have come into this country. As long as they're peaceful, they go home. If they're not peaceful, they go to prison. And, and that has to be done in a very short order. I don't know if we're gonna do it this year, if we're gonna do it next year, but at some point we're gonna have to do that and probably deal with the chaos at the same time. So when they asked me that question on the show, it was, you almost have to take a step back and distill it out into specific parts so people see the bigger picture. One of the bigger picture items that routinely trips people up, and I've said this all along, especially about the invasion of Taiwan, I think they've done several demonstrations. And a demonstration is where you muster your forces you position your forces and you put them into a, a specific invasion array or a specific attack array, but you're really not attacking. You're just demonstrating that you can do it. They've done that several times with their movements of their ships around Taiwan. But I, I was surprised that they hadn't gone in and then I understood why they didn't go in. Logistically, again, the communist model is built off the Russian doctrine and the Russian doctrine goes all the way back to World War II. One of the limitations that all of our adversaries share right now across this planet is that they can't conduct operations the same way we've been able to do combined arms. And I've talked about combined arms operations and why it takes so much coordination, so much practice, it takes so much inertia and logistics to pull it off. One of the limitations that the Chinese have, the Russians have, the Ukrainians have is they can't do combined arms. If you're going to do any kind of a battlefield movement, you have to do combined arms. You need air, ground, you need, you need coordination between air and ground, and even missile forces. You need to coordinate so you don't have fratricide. And when you have two, two, engage, two, meeting, two enemies meeting in an engagement area, you have what's called a forward edge of the battle area, the FIBA. The fortage of the battle area is where those two, engage, those two engaging forces meet. And when you meet on a battlefield, you want to have rock solid 
coordination between air and ground. So you're not dropping bombs on your own troops. Our adversaries can't do that. Not in any way, shape, or form that's effective. They're good at jamming. They're good at electronic warfare. They're good at psychological warfare. They're good at infiltration, but they suck at combined arms. And it's one of the limitations that the, the Chinese have related to sea operations. They're not a seafaring nation. And because of that, they have several limitations. One of the biggest limitations that I've talked about, and let me put it in context so people understand why I'm talking about it, the operation of an aircraft carrier. You can make the, the case that an aircraft carrier is obsolete. That's a different conversation. I'm talking about the operation of a carrier. We are the only country on this planet since World War II that's been able to operate a combined arms carrier battle group anywhere on this planet. None of our adversaries can do it. The Russians tried it, failed. The, the Chinese have two of their carriers, their old Russian carriers that have basically been refurbished, and they can't do it either. The reason why they can't do it is because they can't do combined armed operations. And it's when you when you look at the bigger picture that's associated with that, if you're going to do a, any kind of landing force across even the Taiwan Straits, you're going to need combined arms. You're going to need aircraft. You're going to need coordination of those aircraft, the troops on the ground. You're going to need ships in the area that can provide naval gunfire and fire support. There's a whole host of, of um process and operational process that needs to happen to conduct an amphibious landing. And after my conversation with Colonel Sellen, and I realized what the focus of the Chinese were and where their, their, their focus really has been and where it is, it gave me a new perspective. You know, the, 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 the bigger piece of that is that the Chinese are doing influencing operations still in this country. They're, they're, they might be setting up for kinetic, but I think it's going to be very, very limited. And again, that goes back to the conversation we've had multiple times about logistics, right? Matt, when, when Matt's on the show, Matt talks about the worst case scenarios related to the people we're importing and the situation around that. And hang on, WD, there's there's a couple of pieces to that one child policy and some bigger some bigger things to think about here that I think are salient for, for this part of the conversation. And one of those is in that Tucker interview, um, I think it was Brett Weistein. I think that was the guy's name. He talks about military age males as a weapon other than kinetic, changing demographics and not only changing demographics, but flooding the system with males versus females and changing the gene pool. And, he, and that's a bit, that's a wider discussion, but it, it bears conversation. And where I'm going with the combined arms comment and, and the conversation is, there's, I don't think the Chinese are going to be able to pull off an amphibious assault given what's going on in China right now. They have they have economic issues going on, environmental issues. They've got um, internal strife within the military. I mean, there's a lot of things going on all at once, and the same thing is happening in other parts of the world. But why it, why it affects China is that for every day that goes by that they don't go into Taiwan. That gives us more breathing room and more breathing space to be able to train the Taiwanese to influence the situation on the ground and to mount some kind of a defense. And anytime you engage in any kind of warfare, it all boils down to logistics. Can you sustain the forces on the ground? And 
you know, when you're doing amphibious operations, and I'm not an expert in amphibious operations, just so you know, but when you're doing amphibious operations, you have to establish a beachhead. Then you have to support that beachhead, and you have to you have to continue to move forward and push forward and push sustainment, meaning beans, bullets, and gas, onto the beachhead until you secure some kind of a port. That's a monumental undertaking for anyone. But if you can't do combined arms, there's no way you're going to pull off logistics when you're trying to support troops on the ground, on the ground without coordination. That's a tremendous effort. And more importantly, it takes, you have to have the, the ability to do production, to move it right from the factory to the theater of operations. That was, that was how we did it in World War II. We took it from the ground, we manufactured it, and we shipped it right to the front, right from the manufacturing facilities. And the Russians did the exact same thing. If you're a net importer and you don't have those raw resources, you're, you're relying on somebody else. And look at what's happening in, the, in Ukraine right now. We're not able to even, literally, we're not even able to sustain one week's worth of, of firepower or maneuver right now, let alone support Israel. So, you know, there's, there's a number of different challenges just to get on the beach, let alone to move inland. And it takes a monumental amount of logistics to do that. Get away from the number of people. That's not really relevant. Yeah, I mean, it is relevant, but it's not relevant to the logistical side of this, other than you got to move troops too. And you got to have replacements. And Chinese get replete with bodies, but getting them to the beach is a whole different conversation. And that was the stuff that I didn't want to talk about because I would have been there for three hours talking about that on Monday. The thing that I wanted to impress on everyone is that the Chinese are here. They're a real threat. And there's a number of different places that, that the number of different, I should say, scenarios that could play out. And regardless of what you think, I don't see a Red Dawn moment. In fact, I, I haven't seen one for a very long time. And we've, we've discussed this several times. And, and I think most of us agree that the Red Dawn moment's a one-trick pony. And again, it all boils down to logistics. So, you know, all of that, when you put it into context, you see there's challenges that the, even the Chinese have to pull off something as big as an, an attack on Taiwan or an attack here. And they definitely can't do, and, and I could be wrong, but I don't see them or the Russians having the ability to do two different theaters of operations at the same time. That was one of the other things that we pulled off in World War II. If you look back from 1943 to 1945, we were fighting in three theaters of war. We were in the Mediterranean, we were on the European soil, and we were all over the Pacific. That is a monumental undertaking logistically just to support one line of operation. Monumental. And that's not even aircraft. If you think about how much fuel it takes for one aircraft carrier to operate one, one set of aircraft for one carrier on a weekly basis, a huge number. And we were doing that with 30, 40 carriers, plus ships, plus support ships, plus aircraft on the ground, plus, plus food, plus bullets, plus medical supplies, plus cycling people in and out, a huge undertaking. We don't physically, and none of our enemies have the ability to do that right now. That's the reality on the ground. 
And there's Colonel Johnson. Let me add him to it. Colonel Johnson, how are you? Great. How about you guys? Hi, Colonel. Hey, great. Thanks for jumping on. And uh, all right, you ah, it's all good. You let me know. It's all good. But I was just talking about um, the conversation from Monday night about the the Chinese and and what I think and uh, why I didn't go into it a, a deeper conversation. Um, the uh, the interesting part of the conversation was, you know, you never can cover all the stuff that you think you should cover when you do that, right? And um, one good thing is I'll probably be back on the show in a few weeks to go through some of these other topics. But um, I was talking through the operational challenges that the Chinese would have to invade Taiwan and operations here and, you know, totally. logistical challenges with that. So I thought of, I thought of something pertinent to that, actually, as you were talking about it. Um, I, I can remember back to Desert Storm, Desert Shield in the C-141 world. And I don't believe we have anything close to the capability we had back then. Literally, you would see a 141 flying between Saudi and the U.S. via Europe. You would literally see a 141 or a C-5 every five minutes. Yeah, because it takes a tremendous amount of logistics to keep all of those um, troops on the ground supplied. And we, we stood down our C-17 manufacturing a few years ago. So what we got is what we got. Yeah. And that and represents yeah. the challenge, right? There's there in, and you're the aircraft guy, so you could you could talk to this at nauseum. I'll stop talking in a second, but well, give us some idea because you you flew heavies. Give us some idea of what that took going in and out of Afghanistan and Iraq, just just as an operational basis, as a you know, as a pilot going in there. Well, I didn't get to I was out of the 141 heavy world at that time. Um, but I can imagine just from what I saw in Desert Shield, Desert Storm timeframes in Somalia. And other things that it was a huge undertaking. I mean, the amount of movement of personnel and equipment and you name it. I mean, it's all going by airplane into some place like Afghanistan. And the stuff that we would have carried into Saudi back in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, was everything under the sun. I mean, from shoe polish to Hellfire missiles to, you know, you name it any any possible imaginable thing that could go in an airplane and the quantity of material needed is just enormous you know for for any kind of sizable deployment and like one other thing that's kind of a good analogy or thing to consider like back during that time frame there were so many airplanes we could literally talk on our common vhf or, or we'd be using uhf radio and we could relay football scores all the way from the U.S. to Saudi and back just on UHF by airplane to airplane to airplane. That's impressive. Now, that means we had a hell of a lot of airplanes in the air that were close together that were moving all at once to be able to support that on the ground. That's what that means. What's the, what's yeah. the curvature of the Earth? Like 70 miles? So divide the distance of the U.S. to wherever by 70, and that's how many airplanes you need to have seeing the window to tail. To do that that's that's pretty impressive that is well, amazing about airplanes yeah i mean in the air when you're at altitude uhf or vhf either one will go hundreds of miles you know a couple hundred miles from airplane to airplane you could probably you could potentially talk 250 300 miles away um 
but it would, you know, you'd have to have another airplane up at altitude to do that. To make that feasible. Yeah. One more thing about that though, is I mean, since world war two, every conflict that we've got into has been uncontested airspace. You can fly some C-17s or C-5s over to Stevisful, and you're going to have a bunch of bogeys on your ass. And so battlefield's definitely not the same as it was even, you know, even 10 years ago. I mean, depending on the economy is. Like one thing I think, Steve, you and I talked about this on the phone one time was like, if we get in any conflict with China or Russia, you know, any peer, near peer adversary, um, you know, it's going to be dangerous as soon as you get near the coast of the U.S. I mean, they could have potentially have, you know, naval vessels or subs with air to air missiles that could be taking planes out of the sky, you know, 50 miles off the coast. I mean, it's there's no safe spot. And if we have a near peer thing and that i think would be a huge shock to the american public you know to be like hey airliners are getting shot down and cargo planes are getting shot down and you know well they they have so that let me put that in context so i doubt they would go after commercial planes but they could definitely use um i can't think of the name what is it Uh, adsb geez that was not coming to me can't, right. can't tell I'm a pilot, that's for sure. They could <laughs> use ADSB to figure out which aircraft are around them, right? Unless the military guys turn off their transponders, then it's then it's line of sight and radar. They could do that, but I don't that to me doesn't seem like a likely attack surface because there's too many variables that would go against them with the information war. And you have to couple any of those actions with the information war and the ability to blame other people or the right. ability to blame a proxy. And right. You know, given that, I don't think they'd go after commercial airliners unless there was somebody important on it. But but, uh, but the ahead. thing that we're not talking about is, you know, because they don't have the level of airlift capability within the military anymore, the craft, the Civil Reserve Air Fleet that all the airlines participate in has become much more important. And I think that they would be able to probably figure out which flights were craft flights and have potentially have troops being deployed overseas. And so I, I don't think, I, I think if you were in a craft flight, you'd be a legal, you'd be a legal target. Um, law of warfare wise. You would be, if you're looking at the, if, but remember those law, that law of warfare, that, that doctrine that everybody's referencing, that's our law of warfare. True. It doesn't mean the enemy works that way. And doesn't exactly. mean the enemy is going to abide by the Geneva Convention. Convention, you can, I mean, most of the elite right now are not abiding by the Geneva Convention. They've, in fact, they have done their very best to, you know, do as many crimes against humanity as they possibly could. So, right. I, I don't consider that something I would even pay attention to at this point. I, I, I would say that they're going to do whatever it is they need to do. Right. To win the to win the engagement, right? And if that means bringing down commercial airliners, hey, sky's the limit, right? Right. So, I, I think the other the other challenge that is sitting there that um, we don't really take any uh, or have any conversation around is the economic side of the house, right? China owns our debt, a lot of our debt, I should say. Can China I say has a lot of, Go ahead. 
well, before you leave the aviation thing, um, before we went into that Chinese debt thing, I was going to say a really pertinent situation that just happened like a week or so ago was the IL-76 that got shot down by supposedly Patriot missiles in Ukraine that had, I believe it was a Russian airplane, but it had Ukrainian POWs on it is what I believe yeah, happened. That was a big that was a big thing on the Russian channels for sure. And and the thing that occurred to me was that you know it could be just as likely us our military shooting down airliners potentially. Um but anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Sorry, Sorry. I had a lovely conversation with myself on mute. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to I wanted to kind of do a PSA because Steve and I were talking uh, this morning before the show, and there's been a lot of feedback about both Steve and I being kind of uh, known to say some bad words every now and then. And I know that I've had people tell me that I'm a degenerate reprobate and I have nothing to offer but my really offensive lexic lexicon of filthy street vernacular. So I just wanted to say eat a bag of big Tootsie Rolls. Um, we're going to do better, not because we were called out for all the bad words we say, because all that's going to do is make us say more bad words, but there's been some feedback of, uh, people say, you know, you you guys talk about things. You guys are just a little like, too army for people. Yeah. I would like, you know, maybe my kids to listen to, or maybe I would like to open up, uh, you know, the eyes and the ears of other people who aren't necessarily in our, in our circle of you know, based truth. So, um, so I'm trying to figure out how to do, how to establish a virtual swear jar. And I don't, I don't know what we're going to put in the jar and what we're going to use the money for, but, uh, I'm, I'm going to make a commitment from, from here forward to not S A Y the fuck word as much as I normally do. I'm going to try to cut it off. So, so I just wanted to put that out there. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Uh, that public service announcement brought to you by Trooper, the Trooper channel. So I, I, actually the feedback we got this week was uh, was valid feedback. Hey, I want to listen to your show with my kids and you guys seem to swear more. And the more you get into the whiskey, the more you guys swear. So, hey, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll sign up for that because I, a couple of reasons for that, right? If you want to listen to it, if you think what we're saying is valuable enough for your kids to listen Hey, that's great. I've been unapologetically raw for the very simple reason that I want to talk to the problem. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want to deal with the snowflakes that you want to hit me with the Christianity nonsense that, you know, my journey is your journey and you should you should sign up for my journey because it's my journey and my journey is the most important. Now, I'll sign up for that because your your kids are going to listen. Hey, I can tone it down for your kids. I'm OK with that. If you think it's if you think what we're doing is that important. I'm totally okay with that. But for the, the the Christian zealots that want to tell me that their journey is everybody else's journey and everybody has to sign up for it, you should go really take a, a really good look at what you're doing. The, your journey is your journey, not mine. And, yeah. I, you know, I'm going to repent for my sins when I get, get to the other side. And trust me, there's a few of them there. But the you point might, is, you might. God's going to look the other way on mine. He's going to give. Oh no, time. no, no! Yeah. Just the number of times I've taken the Lord's name in vain. Like, you know why? Because I don't hang around with a bunch of Christian zealots. Yeah. So there's that. But anyway, you get our point, and uh, we're not trying to belabor the point. But I, I want to respond to something that was put in the, in the chat because uh, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen the acronym for a while. LCAC. 
Now that is a that's a marine right there. That's an amphibious warfare marine saying that. So, you know, because the AAV and the LCAC, so that's that's a that's a term I haven't seen for a long time. You don't know what that is. And the LCAC is the uh, is the uh, basically it's a hovercraft that carries tanks and and uh, vehicles to shore. And uh, yeah, hoorah! And then of course you know naval gunfire. That's uh, that's something I haven't heard for a long time either. So. That's uh, it brings back some good memories. So, so let me let me walk through this whole let's attack uh, and take over Taiwan. So I think that Hong Kong is more likely to get attacked and taken over than Taiwan initially, but I I, I believe both of them are targets, and so they're going to cross the channel there, and then they're going to have a beach landing, and then what happens then because they have some super dense cities and they're not going to want to bulldoze it like they, like they did in Gaza. So what are they, what, like, what's the next step there? So you send a bunch of dudes to go take over a really densely populated um, Island metropolis. And then what you kind of go with the fact that the population is, generally conformant and they'll listen to you when you invade their country because you're controlling at intersections like i i don't i don't understand exactly how they're going to do it but they did what they did in hong kong was they started doing exactly what soros did here with hiring da's you know with his money is the chinese were running campaigns to get chinese sympathizers in government and so the more when they got in government and the more these decisions were were brought to bear legally, you know, should we, should we obey, you know, is it offensive to make fun of China? For example, can you be punished for that? And, um, and these types of things. So they've been, they've been infiltrating Hong Kong's government for a while, and I'm sure they're doing the same thing in Taiwan, but what, what happens after they, after they do that? So I don't have any doubt that China is capable of attacking and eventually taking over Taiwan and Hong Kong. And I think that they want to do it, but there's a couple of things that, that are kind of open in my mind on that. And the, the first thing is there's a lot of businesses that are centered there. The Wagner group used to be centered there and you know, when they, when nobody knew about who they were, but if you scare everybody away, that's doing all the business there, then what exactly do you have? Cause nobody's want to, nobody is going to want to come back to that. It's like why Dubai is so popular. You know, they can, you can kind of do what you want. So if, if you can't do what you want anymore, and then what, what happens to Taiwan and Hong Kong after that, right? So I'm, I just, I haven't really thought about it a whole lot, but I'm thinking it isn't going to, China's a lot better off leaving Hong Kong and Taiwan alone, but I think that their communistic narcissism is getting in the way, and, and that's why they want to attack it. But it, it doesn't really benefit them, at least not that I can see. Yeah. It, it, well, there's two parts. There's so much to unpack there. Let's just talk. Let's just talk about the urban environment, right? You don't want to fight in an urban environment if you don't have to, because it's door to door. It eats a lot of people. I mean, high rise to high rise. Yeah. Uh, can you? I look just just kicking doors on on uh, buildings in Iraq in the limited in the limited amount of time I did. I can tell you how incredibly hard it was and watching both SF and regular regular units go through the planning process just to clear a street. It takes a huge amount of people. Yeah, the Chinese have a huge amount of people, 
But here's the problem with that. When you put that many people on the ground, yeah, you can kick doors all day long, but you still have to feed them. You have to supply them. You have to move them around. You have to evacuate them when they're, moon- when they're wounded and you have to treat them. And that's a huge undertaking. Just like when you start destroying buildings. I mean, just look at what's gone on in Bakhmut. Bakhmut is a husk of what it used to be. That's the result of urban fighting. That's what the end state will be when they move in there. It'll be Aleppo all over again. And you, if you burn down all the real estate you're trying to take, guess what? You're just left with a pile of rubble. So you own an island now that you can say it's one China. Nobody's going to move back in there and rebuild because everything that you have to put in there, the CCP is going to want control of. So their only course of action that makes any sense would be to influence and do influencing operations so that the people sign up for communism. I don't see that ever happening. You have half the population that's sympathetic because they're paid off. The other half that's like they don't want any part of that. So I, I see that as a longer term. That's why I'm saying 27 yeah, 26, 27 before they're even ready to do anything because they still got a lot of influencing to do. I don't, I don't, they weren't successful in the last election to put a pro-communist government in. They have to basically start over at ground zero on their influencing operations and double down on their efforts. I don't see that working out for them. And they don't, they, they don't have a lot of advantages that you have with other countries. Like the weather in Taiwan is basically perfect all year round. So you can't freeze people out. You can't sweat them out. It's an island nation. There's, there's some challenges of resiliency with the indigenous population there. It's, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens if they, if they decide to go there. But I, I'm going to predict that Hong Kong is going to go down before Taiwan does. Okay, let me, let me respond to something in the, in the chat. So, Saint, let me, let me help you out. Everybody in D.C. is crazy. All of them. <laughs> They're all nuts. They're all psychopaths. They're all sociopaths. These people are completely divorced from reality. They have no concept that we can't fight in Ukraine, let alone in two other theaters of operation. And who are you going to send over there? They've decimated the military. So they're, they're going to put a bunch of people, and if Dick Durbin gets his way, we'll put a bunch of immigrants and foreigners into uniform and then go fight the Third World War with what ammo? Most of the Americans have bought all the ammo just in the last month. What are they going to fight with? They're going to go confiscate all that 556? I'm not giving mine up. I mean, I'll give it up, but it'll be coming a lot faster than them picking up a box, if you know what I'm saying. So (laughs) how do you think that's going to work out for them? And then there's the, the question of, again, logistics. We don't produce anything except BS. So what exactly are we going to send over there? Here's another box of BS for you. I mean, there's they're completely divorced from reality. They don't have they have no concept of and and you can make the argument which I will make the argument that I think this is all by design. I think they all know that and they don't care. Because They've made some very quintessential statements just in the last 48 hours. And one of them was made not just in Europe, but it was made here. We're entering a period of chaos worldwide. That tells me that they all know 
And they are all architecting and working with talking points and narrative to create as much confusion and as much chaos as possible. And if you read the book Pawns in the Game by William Carr, you will see exactly what I am talking about. Exactly. To a T. All of those things playing out right in front of you. I don't think that there is one person in D.C. that is not completely bought off. I mean, here's where the here's here's where the rubber meets the road. So Ronna McDaniels says she's going to resign. And who were the first three awful people that the establishment put right front and center? Kevin McCarthy. And who else? They were all swamp creatures. And why? Because they want to replace somebody awful with somebody even more awful. They're completely divorced from reality. I don't see them. And look, let's face it. The system has to completely crumble and collapse for anything to change. All of us know that. And all of us know it's coming. All of us. And if you say you're not, you're lying to yourself. Everybody sees it. Even the people that are doing yeoman's work to try and convince you that everything's normal, everything's going to turn around, nothing's wrong, life is great, those people know it too. I don't care who they are. They know it too. There's no no person in D.C. right now that is even cognizant of what's coming. And there's no bunker that's deep enough once it happens. I'll let you guys chime in on that because I think I've said enough there. Just saying. Um, well, I was going to say uh, the word's escaping me, but what is it when you surround an island and you stop all traffic? I, I know the word and I can't remember. A siege, a blockade? That blockade. That's blockade. what I was looking for. Blockade. Yes. A picket think- line and a blockade. If I was the Chinese and I was going to do any kind of military thing against Taiwan, I would just blockade Taiwan and be like, okay, when you're ready to let us control you, we'll let you have food. And they could just, I think all it would take for them to pull that strategy off and be successful is for us to continue being somehow bought off, like through the Biden regime, or we get engaged in war in the Middle East or with Russia and I think the Chinese could pull off a blockade strategy with minimal effort. Um, I also think that they could just sit, simply wait until we collapse, like you just described, Steve. It, they could just wait until that happens. As soon as the United States goes into any kind of civil war, China is immediately crowned basically king of the planet, as far as I can tell, between them and the Russians. And, um, you know, so that it... it I don't see any rush that China needs to attack Taiwan physically unless they are going through some kind of internal collapse and they need their own kind of war to distract everybody, you know, like our own elites here are looking for in the Middle East or Russia. Um, I don't see them having an incentive to to attack someplace like Taiwan directly um, unless there's some other thing we don't know about. Another well, thing, I think, I think there's two parts to that, right? Let's go back to the Middle East for a second. Right. The Middle East 
specifically the situation that they're trying to craft and the narrative around Iran is wag the dog. It is in coordination. And we talked about this in the last round table. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I agree with Matt that none of this is being written down, written down. None of this is being coordinated via email. This is all being done, you know, with gang signs and, and, um, you know, backdoor dope deals. But look, the administration or the regime or whatever you want to call them, the cabal, the regime that's in D.C. is coordinating with the Iranians. Why? Because the Iranians are in trouble, too. If we were really playing the long game and we were really working um, on the, all the angles, we would be trying to disrupt them internally because the regime in Iran is in trouble internally. And they're seeing a massive decline of the Muslim faith across the country the, the again again this goes back to what i was saying for the past year the the consciousness of the planet has changed the consciousness is raising across the entire planet when you talk about the great awakening you're talking about the consciousness of the planet waking up to the criminality the fraud and all of the malfeasance that the, this parasitical group of elite that have been running the planet for the last thousand years have been doing not just to human beings, but to children and to, to animals and to our environment for the sake of trying to build these narratives to get us to follow along, e.g. keep the boogeyman front and center and keep people scared. The, the entire planet's waking up to that now. And there's, there's been a shift in the last 12 months of the cultural narrative. And the cultural narrative has, has shifted away from 25 years of programming, I'm going to say 50 years of programming, that trust the government, trust elected officials, trust your law enforcement first responders, trust your doctor. Nobody trusts any of them after COVID. They don't trust the media the most, but they don't trust anybody in the government. Absolutely. And you could go down the line from there of who they don't trust. And it's because they've seen the abject gaslighting and the narratives crumble because of alternative media. And so the cultural narrative has shifted to a point now where the, the consciousness of the public is looking at this going, I don't trust any of that. I'm not going to listen to any of that. But let's fast forward because this Tucker Carlson interview with Putin is a perfect example of how the elite use this kind of an event to shape the narrative. I want everybody to take a step back from the interview itself and look at who Tucker Carlson has been interacting with and who is going to broadcast this and then start working your way back. Let's start with Alex Jones. Alex Jones did a video today that Elon Musk and a few other people have pushed out about this interview that he's going to get, you know, he's going to get first rights to interview Tucker and all this. Who's been, who's Alex Jones been working with for the past six months? Who was on his show not even a week ago threatening the elite? Ivan Rankin. Who's Ivan Rankin working with? He's working with Mike Flynn. He's in the Flynn inner circle. Who's Flynn working with? Flynn's working with Trump. Well, who's Trump working with? You can make a lot of, a lot of assumptions there. The point is, this is a controlled, release of information that has been specifically designed to drop at a specific time. And 
It's being disseminated across platforms that they control. I'm not convinced any of this is anything other than a planned event to shape a narrative to go and out everybody in D.C. But you notice how Epstein completely died. No one's talking about Epstein. No one's talking about the flight manifest. No one's talking about the release of information. It's like the COVID information. The COVID information was dropped, and then they distracted the public yet again with something else, which was Ukraine. This is yet another distraction away from what's really going on. And what's really going on is they're passing bills right now that will, number one, outlaw militias, number two, allow non U.S. citizens into the military in mass and into law enforcement and into first responder roles across this country. States are doing it and the federal government's doing it. This to me is just more distraction. Because listen, what is Putin, Putin going to say that's going to be earth-shaking other than everybody in D.C. is corrupt and completely divorced from reality? Or that everybody in D.C. is on the payroll of China. He's never going to say that. It's true, but he's never going to say it. He's going to talk about biolabs. He's going to talk about the war in Ukraine and how the, the U.S. is behind everything and they run the Ukrainian government. We already know that. So what exactly is he going to say that's going to be earth-shaking? I can't think of one thing. And more importantly, somebody tell me why I should care. Why is this such a big deal that I should stop paying attention to everything else? But this is a perfect example of a narrative shift to keep people distracted away from the things that really matter. And one of those things is the Epstein files. Who was on the airplane? Who went to the island? Why aren't we talking about that? Why isn't Tucker talking about that? What, he's trying to stop us from World War III? He's not going to stop that. Sorry, not going to happen. What he should be talking about, all those people that he affiliated with for how many years as a journalist that he knows are pedophiles. Why isn't he talking about that? I'll tell you why. Because this is another controlled release to distract you away from the things that matter. Epstein should have burned down Washington, D.C. That Let me put this in context. That was a Mossad operation in conjunction with the CIA, and that is an act of war. There is no other word for that. That is an act of war. And everybody in D.C. that took the money or is compromised is a traitor. Every one of them. Why are we talking about what Putin's doing? I don't care what he had for lunch, let alone how badly he's mismanaging the war in Ukraine. I want to know who went to the island. I want to know who in D.C. molested a child or worse, killed a child. That's what I want to know because then I want to see him stand trial. That is exactly why this this is being released right now to completely distract you away from the things that matter. 
And you see how emotional you can get just thinking about that. Imagine if if Putin says something that's earth shaking. What's the press going to do? They're going to they're going to spin out of control and do what they always do, which is hyperbole to keep people off balance and to keep people looking at things that don't matter. This is all kabuki theater, just like the the situation in the Middle East, just like the situation in China, just like the situation at Eagle Pass. All of that is kabuki theater. You go a mile either side of Eagle Pass, and guess what? It's wide open. All of it is BS. And the point of all of this rant is that you look at everything as BS and work your way back towards the truth. And then apply the so what test. So what does this have to do with the big picture? And most of the time, it will be nothing. Just noise. Let me bring on Colonel Conrad. Colonel Conrad, glad you could make it tonight. Tonight you're delinquent, Dave, not driving, Dave. I'm delinquent, Dave. But uh, it is a good day. I did, uh, I think I mentioned last time my mother was in the hospital. She still is, but I got word that there's no cancer involved. So took a week to find that out. But awesome. uh, praise the Lord, it's a good day either way. Hey, you Great. take your wins where they am, where they we get them, and I can tell you that the audience was praying for. So I appreciate that. The well wishes mm-hmm. from everybody in the audience, and I appreciate that as well. All right, so let me open up this to comments because I ranted long enough, and everybody gets my point that this is distraction. So let's let's start with you, Troop. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So the first thing is weapon stockpiles. And we have an enduring stockpile plan of like active hedge and inactive nuclear warheads. And we kind of have a thing that I think uh, Colonel Conrad would probably be able to talk to you better than me. And that's our conventional weapons that are like in bomb holder Germany, for example, or Mariana or all those ships that are rusting away somewhere in some San Francisco Bay. Pomacus stocks. Ar- Armicus? Pomacus stocks. Remember over in Europe? Pomacus. So. Pomacus we're running out of that stuff. Right. And then we've seen uh, like on the Russian channels, they're, they're making fun of and ridiculing some of the stuff that they're, that they're pulling out of the stockpiles that they're, <laughs> they're sending over to the Ukrainian theater now. And I mean, we see that on both sides. So first of all, I pray for mercy for soldiers on both sides of this conflict, especially the cannon fodder on the Ukrainian side, because at least the Russians have a, a near line to training and, somewhat functioning command structure in their military the ukrainians are are just cannon fodder there's conscripts at this point they have a couple of advisors out there and they're just they're just getting slaughtered and it goes to what steve was talking about earlier and what uh you're an expert at dave is combined combined live combined arms uh combined war uh, arms warfare so for people who don't really understand that it is a, a way to orchestrate a bunch of different fighting forces so that they can engage an objective and move cohesively. And the easiest way to explain it from me being an old burned out cavalry scout is shooting over the tops of Bradley's with M1s while you're getting covered with Apaches and A-10s are flying overhead and you got artillery somewhere way behind you that can't keep up. All of that stuff requires a lot of really tight collaboration among commanders. And it has a lot to do with how talented and experienced your forces are as well. So I don't want anybody to think that the Russians and the Chinese don't have combined arms 
capability because they do they sell a lot of that uh, tactical channel internetworked stuff on the open market and there's hundreds of posters where they'll show like the satellite and the airplane and the ship and the forward observer on the ground and you know all the all the all the data going and flying everywhere what they don't have is the aptitude to utilize all that so they might have that capability but that capability first of all is only on their a units it's not on their b units or the cannon fodder and they don't have a whole lot of experience using it they don't have any interoperable interoperability with any allies to speak of and even if they have a peer capable capability of technology they don't have a the peer capability of just natural instinct that americans are really good at with adapting those types of technologies i think the russians have been doing a good job with uh you know hobbling together drones but if if we were to go if the united states was to go against the chinese and the discriminating factor of that was how well uh one fighting force would be able to orchestrate and move their their fighting force in a, in a cohesive way in a collaborative way in a combined arms way i think the united states would still be edged out and and be the victor on that but now we got the sheer volume of forces and then we have the replenishment thing, which the Russians and I think the Chinese, but mainly the Russians kind of lead the world on. I don't remember what the statistic was, but it was something like 72 days from I need a tank to once on the battlefield uh, with them, you know, with some of their some of their major assets. Now, I bring up bomb holder and these other things, because if we're cleaning out all these old weapons, and I think I got to scroll up here. It was Saint, I believe, that said, you know, the United States has this idea that we can arrogantly fight a war on three different fronts. And I and I would I would say four different fronts if you include our southern border, because we know that Russian and Chinese assets are staging down there in Central America, and we have no idea what that's going to look like. Plus, we don't know what the opera is. We don't know who the people in the country are right now and how they're going to operationalize, and that is going to be another front. Um, but not caring about that and not caring about how much death and destruction and, and environmental destruction that these, these uh, World Economic Forum people have uh, created, they're going to be buying a lot of stock in um, metal foundries. They're going to be buying a lot of stock in, in defense industrial complex. They're going to be buying a lot of stock in technical companies that are fielding some of this fifth and sixth generation warfare equipment. And I think it's not unreasonable to predict that since what is it japan bought some of the rust belt steel companies like alcoa who owns that alcoa is aluminum but um they're u.s steel wouldn't it be an insult if a chinese owned u.s steel company was pouring the plates for american armament right and then selling selling that raw material to a weapons manufacturer to build and replace all of this armor and stuff that we put out and destroyed in the, uh, you know, in the Ukrainian battlefield. So we're going to lose on a four-way front. We're going to have to make decisions that are going to cause all of the blood to come back to the core of the body, which I mean, bringing all the soldiers back to the United States. Uh, we're going to be focusing on more uh, domestic defense, which is a terrible way to be. As a, and I'm not saying that we should be offensive, but we shouldn't ever think defensively. And we're, we're going to be forced in that position because we're going to get overtaxed. And since we've utilized all of our Cold War stockpiles in Ukraine right now, and we don't have any real uh, assistance or backup or capability in the European states, we're going to end up abandoning Ukraine. I'm surprised it hasn't happened already, but I think that that's going to go away. Russia's going to go all the way to the Dnieper River. 
they're going to just say the eastern half of Ukraine is our territory now. And then what is it? Poland and Turkey are going to go to war to fight over who gets the western half of Ukraine. Um, we are going to see a complete militarization of the South China Sea. I still don't see what the benefit is of China taking over Taiwan or Hong Kong, but I think they're going to take over Hong Kong first. And they're going to see how that goes. And then they're going to put Taiwan on notice. But they're going to have a hard time with Taiwan. They can't freeze them out. They can't thirst them out. They can't really siege them out, as uh, Colonel Johnson said. They, I, I think Taiwan I think Taiwan would be a lot more, they would live a lot longer under siege than Hong Kong would. Hong Kong, they'd be able to topple that in, in a month. Um, anyway, that there I'm all caught up on all the notes that I made, Steve, so... We'll give Dave time to adjust and get caught up. If I could ask, just coming into this rather cold here, um, obviously you discussed several items right there. What is what is uh, the challenge or the question that Steve posed with regarding Russia, Ukraine, uh, combined arms, etc.? I was I was talking about the one of the challenges the Chinese have <clears throat> is logistics and combined arms. Right. They they don't have the the experience with combined arms. And when you do an amphibious landing somewhere, you have to establish a beachhead. You have to bring on sustainment and follow on forces. Right. And you're doing that all from the sea, as well as you're trying to you're trying to maneuver and do combined arms all at the same time. And they just to me, I don't see that they have the capability to do it. And I tied that all back to the fact that, and Troop, Troop had a very good point. That point is that it's not that they can't do it. It's that they're operationally, they're not as mature as, as we once were. We're not as mature at combined arms anymore either. But you get my point, right? Sure. So my take on that is, first of all, um, you know, you can dress somebody up like a professional NFL football player. He can be a guy the size of a doorway. Uh, he can have a nice spiffy uniform, but that doesn't make him an NFL professional football player. It doesn't mean he has the training, the experience, uh, the years of practice, and, and et cetera. And so, you know, the United States in the Second World War emerged as a world power. First, because we had an absolutely incredible industrial base. Using that foundation, the natural resources we had at hand, um, the fact that the American people were willing to work three shifts around the clock. Consider this, Nazi Germany didn't start working multiple shifts around the clock until four-fifths of the way through the war, uh, which is rather shocking logistically. Uh, so the fact that we were capable and able to do those things uh, allowed us to emerge as a preeminent world power. Go back a century and a quarter to Admiral Mahan, if I recall, who wrote about the doctrine of, of ruling the seas, which makes perfect sense because three, quarter of the, three quarters of the planet is, is water, right? And so the United States Navy has dominated the world's oceans since the Second World War when, granted, we don't have a 900-ship Navy anymore, but the technology the reach, the air power uh, with with the carrier groups you were alluding to, Steve, uh, all of those things have made us the dominant global projection force. And so starting with that foundation, building upon that with our intelligence networks, our over overhead platforms, our technological capabilities, 
and and uh, and expanding that into our air warfare dominance, uh, we we have the ability to move into any given theater with those umbrellas of protection, protect uh, facilitating the logistics reach that we've developed. You look, for example, at the at Russia. Russia may have invented airborne units, technically speaking, but they don't use them in the same way that we do. We can put an airborne brigade pretty much anywhere on the planet within 72 to 96 hours. Russia uses their airborne in a tactical sense because they don't have the lift aircraft. They don't have the reach uh, in any way, shape or form to support that. We do. Um, you know, look at how hard the Brits struggled 40 years ago in the Falkland Islands War, where they had to take civilian ships and all kinds of other, uh, you know, un, uh, atypical assets just to support them fighting against Argentina. It was almost embarrassing for them. They did a great job. Why? Because they have professional soldiers, but they, they just didn't have the reach that they used to have. We're still the only force on the planet that has that kind of reach. You were talking, you were talking, Troop, about uh, forward supplies, pom pomicus stocks. I forget what the acronym stands for. We used to keep uh, battalion sets of of M1 Abrams and M2 Bradleys in various locations in on the European continent, so that we could take reserve uh, reserve army units, fly them over, and pretty much just just add them, let them roll them out. They were they we had a professional uh, maintenance crews that would get them out, lubricate, you know, work on them, do all the things that keep those uh, mechanisms working and functional. And we did that for decades throughout the Cold War. I don't know what the current status is on the Pomkiss stocks, but part of the budgeting for the United States Army each year was upgrades to that equipment so it stayed current and relevant and it wasn't uh, antiquated. And we also had those kind of stocks, at least a combat brigade, heavy brigade, down at uh, Diego Garcia, if I recall. So we could get some roll-on, roll-off ships in there, load them up, and move pretty much anywhere in the Middle East with a much shorter time lag than if we were coming from the continental United States. It was all part of that forward posture. And, of course, if you look in the Pacific, what did we do? We've, we've maintained our occupation in places like Japan and the Philippines and uh, some of those areas so that we could keep pressure. Now, think about this. We have literally kept the Chinese hemmed up in the South China Sea um, pretty much for the entirety of their existence as a nation. Only now are they leapfrogging beyond that and, and expanding their sphere of influence into places like Africa um and so on but it's 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 been a struggle for them all the way the chinese you know i, I did a bit of, of a deep dive uh this past summer i i run into larry bond uh once or twice a year at a convention and uh i would talk to him and, and a friend of his these these larry bond for people who don't know it actually uh taught tom clancy the, the noted author uh pretty much all he knew about naval warfare. And so he, if you look on the cover, you see that he co-wrote Red Storm Rising and The Hunt for Red October. So he's a real expert in naval surface warfare. And so we talked about some of the, the um, evolution 
of the Chinese uh, capabilities, especially uh, hypersonic missiles and so on. It's hypersonic missiles are, are a daunting weapon, but they're not something that's going to dominate the entire sea. And they do have their vulnerabilities. And the Chinese have not shown that they're mature enough in terms of their whole targeting complex to use these effectively. And uh, let's just say the, 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 net, the net summation of my research was that, yes, the Chinese have made significant leaps and bounds. And yes, they are outstripping us in terms of naval, uh, naval surface production, number of ships and tonnage and so on. But it's going to be years, if not decades, before they're capable of operating carrier task forces the way that we do. Uh, Steve, by the way, you mentioned they had some old Chinese, um, some old, excuse me, the Chinese had some old Russian carriers. Uh, they do, but they're actually working on a much larger, more modernized carrier. But again, it's going to take years, if not decades, for them to mature in its application. And this is to say nothing of the fact that, you know, our aviation platforms are so far beyond the rest of the planet that I'm pretty comfortable in thinking I'm not worried about drones. Um, you know, my understanding is that the, the follow on to the F-22 has been flying for quite some time. Nobody knows what it looks like, but it's just generically referred to as the next, you know, next generation uh, air superiority fighter or whatever they're calling it. Bruce Bruce would probably be able to come up with that acronym better than I can. It looks like the Millennium Falcon. Okay. The Millennium Falcon, that <laughs> round disc. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. Well, in any event. Tic-tac. That's what it is. It's a tic-tac. We've replaced it, the F-22. In any it. event, uh, the whole point of my rambling in, in, in response to troops' comments is that uh, we have built over the last, you know, 60, 70 years, uh, a military industrial base that has remained active throughout. And we have expanded uh, upon those capabilities with our communications, our intelligence networking, all of those things that provide the critical support for global dominance. You know, we've been at the forefront. And, and while we're not as capable because we no longer uh, enforce the same kind of doctrine of being able to fight multiple fronts the way that we used to. I don't, I don't think that the Russians have uh, kept pace either. They're, it's been a major struggle for them just to upgrade literally 40 year old vintage tanks uh, in the, in the T 72 and T 90 series of vehicles, T 80 series, et cetera. Uh, so they're still a generation or two behind us in terms of um, the quality of their mechanized platforms on the battlefield. The corruption within their ranks is rife throughout. We took a look and people were speculating about the downfall of Wagner and, and what that would mean if they're going to disseminate experienced, capable troops. Will that, ha will that help them um, in the same way that a, a typical army unit sends people to ranger school so they come back and they can they can train their fellow soldiers the best the best of what i've seen is it there's no indication there's been any success with that and um 
I, I, I still see, you know, the same thing I was talking about last, last April, Steve, when, when we first started speaking is that this tit for tat on the, on the Ukrainian Russian front is, uh, it just continues to languish. There's no one side that can muster the cap- the capacity or capabilities. We're well into second rate soldiers on both sides. We're well into, uh, you know, uh, older vintage systems being railed out of uh, mothballs in the form of T-62s and, and T-72s. Um, I'm just, I'm not, I still laugh when I hear people talk talking about Putin being a threat to Sweden or Germany or Poland. I think the Poles would clean Putin's clock right now. I think the last thing in the world Putin wants to do is fight the Poles in a ground battle. So, yeah, I, I still think that uh, remains uh, a stalemate and a quagmire. And I think it will continue to do so as long as the globalists feel that they can't uh, give that up. They'll just keep pouring pouring in enough life support to, to keep, it, uh, keep it breathing, if you will. So stalemate continues and status quo remains. Nothing, nothing new this month. Colonel Johnson. Hmm. That's quite a bit to follow there between all three of you guys. Um, You're the air guy. Talk about some air stuff. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> well, the biggest thing I thought about when you talked Sorry, about man, was 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 fruit. Yeah. <laughs> and the strong words from the chair force here. Now, um, I think, you know, the thing that, blows me away with the air side that I don't think is as impressive as we used to think is, you know, just as in the military and the army, you know, and the other services, there's been an endless DEI campaign in the air force that was strongly progressing when I retired. And I'm sure it's still, it's one can only assume it's gotten worse. And so I don't think that as far as the the warrior mentality is not as strong as it could be in the Air Force, for sure. And where I'm going with this also is looking at acquisitions and airplanes, airframes and everything else. You know, I was just looking at the Air Force Almanac to see the numbers of aircraft. And uh, it's showing that there's 222 C-17s. There's still 330 KC-135s, which is pretty impressive. Um, but, you know, the F-22 is quite old, actually, by now already. And now this next-generation fighter, you know, we the biggest thing I've heard, and I've heard this long you know, in the last couple of years since Ukraine kicked off, and we know that the Russians haven't done as well as, as they uh, – might have been able to but it's all of our high technology that it takes us decades to feel the new fighter you know this next generation fighter or whatever it probably won't show up for 15 years and and the amount of money we pour in to development when the russians and the chinese are pumping out new aircraft every couple of years is at least my impression on the fighter side and I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not in a position to evaluate those airplanes that the, the Russians are putting out now, but they're certainly putting out a lot 
compared to our F-22s. And I guess where I'm going is I, I just don't know how great our technological advantage is in air power. I think probably our technological advantage is mostly in space and in things that we don't know about, that none of us are aware of. Um, and and I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here a little bit, but one thing that's kind of fascinated me ever since Ukraine kicked off and how we've seen the U.S. position always being been provoking the enemy, whether it's provoking the Russians, provoking the Iranians, provoking the Chinese in some ways. Obviously, the Chinese have provoked us, too, with like their balloon and stuff. But anyway, it's made me think that we have some ace up our sleeve that we don't know what it is. Um, an example is when that Russian cruiser got heavily damaged. Um, another one is that AT&T center that got hit in uh, Tennessee, I think it was. There was a lot of internet chatter about, did something come from space to hit these things? Because it just the way those things played out seemed kind of odd. and. So I guess I'm answering a little bit, but no, that's all right. I mean, look, it, there's there's been a number of events, including Maui. Yes, that draw speculation, and that speculation is around space-based platforms that can do a tremendous amount of damage. And look, I'm not I'm not ready to say that it exists, but I'm not ready to say it doesn't exist, and. It, we probably do have an ace in the hole that nobody knows about. But again, that ace in the hole doesn't make up for good old fashioned troops on the ground. And True. we don't, one of the things that Dave alluded to, but didn't hit precisely is we don't train to the level that we trained in the early 90s. When we went into desert storm, we were probably the most trained army on the planet. For sure. Combined arms warfare. Thirty we were, five days in the field at a time. That's, yes. And that was that was what we did. And even even when I was a company commander in an armor battalion, I can tell you that we didn't train to that level. We just did not. And when we went into Iraq, all that training stopped. We were focused on rotations in and out of country to fight an asymmetric war, not a symmetric war. And we have never gotten back to fighting a symmetric battle or training to fight a symmetric battle. And because of that, everything that that uh, Dave said is right, right? But your point about the our aircraft inventory, spot on. Maybe, look, what's the problem with the F twenty two? Four missiles. It's like a it's my it's like my lever action. You got five rounds and then you're dead. And That's why the F sixteen EX came out as a bomb truck to follow in behind the F F-22s out in front. But that that in and of it, that statement in and of itself tells you unequivocally that we're no longer focused on building the best platform to meet the mission. We're focused on building the platform that, and accepting the platform the defense contractors want to sell us. Why didn't anybody ask the question when the F-22 came out? What happens when you run out of your four missiles? How much ammo do you have in the guns? I mean, we don't even ask that question. Well, and to go to go back to another point, the B fifty two was made when back in nineteen forty eight to fifty two. Yeah, 
I mean, that aircraft is older than I am. It's been reskinned how many different times, but we're still relying on the 52 to be the heavy bomb platform because the B1B and the B2 can't carry the same bomb load. I mean, that just makes the point that it doesn't matter what's in the hopper if if they don't plan for the next fight, which we've never done well anyway, then even even if we have the best training in the world, we still can't fight the fight, right? Or we're going to lose badly until we get organized like we normally do. And and But I want to go back to something Colonel Johnson was just saying that I think is very, very salient. And that is, we probably have space-based assets now that we didn't have before that give us an edge technologically. But you can't discount the enemy's ability to adapt and meet us where we live and assume, like we have in so many other conflicts, that we're fighting this, this stagnant dominion because the enemy gets a vote. And if, if I know one thing that's happened unequivocally in the last 10 years, it's that our enemies have penetrated every single one of our networks and taken a load of technology and plans, even... And the Chinese have taken so much, they have technology plans they don't know how to operationalize. You can't that, discount that no matter how many weapon systems or how cool our stuff is. Steve, that's a critical point. I just wanted to jump in and say, um, you know, as we talk about different aircraft platforms, it, this this technology continues to emerge, but it's no longer about how fast your jet flies or a single aircraft. We fight in a network centric system where you've got you've got satellite platforms providing intel you've got AWACS out there coordinating things there's no such thing as fighting one american fighter combat aircraft you've you've got this system and that's what the russians and the chinese have not been able to graduate to you look they fly, they fly very simplistic uh air to surface support missions um they don't have the levels of sophistication in operating in in the kind of teams, the coordination between, um, you know, electronic jammers that have to get out in fl uh, front and, and overwhelm the enemy's radar systems combined with wild weasel type aircraft that come in and destroy some of those anti-aircraft systems combined with fighters that establish air dominance combined with the uh, in-flight refueling crews, the KC-135s Bruce was, was talking about. Um, each of these echelons of, of aircraft work in harmony. It's just like Troop was talking about. We've got all these different systems in a combined arms uh, scheme that are meant to be seamless. They, they interdigitate, they mutually support, and, and the sum is far greater than... Uh, excuse me, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so coordinating all of this stuff is where we have excelled and practiced. And of course, Steve, go back to this simple idea, the National Training Center, the NTC, Fort Irwin, California. For decades, we had every, you know, from, from the lowliest privates and sergeants right on up to generals practicing all of the necessary things in the desert that, that are critical in mounting combined arms operations, coordinating different different types of combat power uh, in those in those valleys and desert floors, and that's why we excel. The Chinese are trying to do that. They have their own version of the NTC, but their vehicles 
and their systems are not quite as good as ours. They still can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with an M1 with their Type 99 main battle tank. It's, uh, they're, they're not, they haven't graduated there yet. But by that same token, I, I think that brings up another point that you can't assume that our technological advantages are going to be the equalizer on the battlefield. We're seeing that play out right now with the Bradleys and some of the other um, equipment we've we've sent over there. Now, you can make the case for training, but what did the Russians do to the Germans in World War II? They overwhelmed them with numbers. And that's exactly what the Chinese will do. It's exactly what the Russians will do if push, push comes to shove. Anyway, let's move off this topic because I think we could sit here and, and talk about, I think the salient point is, is that I think we all agree that, that, there's a, there's a mismatch on the battlefield. We're seeing some of that play out in Ukraine right now with the Russians and that the Chinese are afflicted by the same thing. I, what I want to, what I want to zero in on now is um, there's a lot of conjecture about the, the drop of this um, um, Putin interview tomorrow. I, I what I want to talk through is I think this is controlled disclosure. And the question that that I have for all of you is, given and and look at this from just what you've seen over the last forty eight hours, given what you've seen over the last forty eight hours, do you think this is a concerted effort to change the public narrative around the war in Ukraine, or do you think this is a concerted effort to release information about the elite in DC? I start with start with you, Troop. <laughs> well, I think um, it is going to have a negative impact on the Biden administration. Tucker is the one leading the way on it. I don't know if I believe that story, multiple stories that came out that said that uh, Zelensky's put Tucker Carlson on a hit list or something. Now he's like an enemy of the, the state. Um, there was a whole bunch of rabble rousing of the liberals trying to call this treason or something other than journalism, even though there's been four or six different journalists that have interviewed Putin since the nineties, but whatever comes out of it, I, I know Putin himself being a cold war soldier, a KGB operative and an intelligent man, he's not going to waste the opportunity to throw some darts at uh, the Biden administration, not only just for their incompetence, but also for their corruption. So I don't, believe that it's a, a controlled release or a, a, a narrative change that the leftists in the United States have put Carlson up to. Um, but I could see them having a seat at the table as far as planning how to steer this in a way that would it already what it's going to do is change American sentiment on the war in Ukraine. But who are you really trying to influence? Most of the conservatives know that we shouldn't be there. And most of the stalwart liberals that support uh, Biden are going to are are not even going to listen to the Tucker Carlson interview. They're going to wait for uh, who's who's that raging lunatic uh, that that unfuckable female with the glasses that's that's their their hood ornament of the leftist rage. Rachel Madcow. Yeah, her. So you know they're going to wait for her to come out with her missive to to get a the cliff note summary on on what this is all about. So it's, it's not designed to influence the conservative public sentiment. It's not going to have any impact on influencing the liberal public sentiment. But 
I do think from a from an a uh, an election and perspective, this is definitely going to get a lot of people, a lot more people who weren't going to register to vote to register to vote because they're pissed. Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if Putin drops a lot of hints that there's going to be a, a conscription or there's going to be a, an unavoidable conflict with with Mother Russia that is going to draw uh, the U.S. into a you know a kinetic warfare with them, and it, it's going to be all uh, psyop of, oh, gee, you know, I have a son that's a military age. What, you know, what do we do about this? So I, Putin's not going to waste this opportunity to, to steer this in his direction, but I, I would, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has to say about the, uh, the corruption and the bio labs and all that other stuff, the things that we've already proven have been happening in Ukraine, but the FSB or the, you know, the KGB has, has had its ear to the ground since long before, uh, Crimea, you know, happened. So, he might he might use this as an opportunity to to pull the uh pull the tarp up on on a couple of zingers that he's been waiting for a long time to to release on on media that's that's what i'm looking forward to is is a, a couple of major uh major incontrovertible evidence-backed di disclosures that that he's gonna drop on tucker that's that's what i'm hoping we'll see colonel johnson i kind of think along the same lines is troop um you know you Putin could go and talk about biolabs and things we all already know about, or he could look at it as a look at it as a way to really go for the jugular. <clears throat> and I mean, who knows? He could come out with anything, but if he came out, maybe he could come out with some stuff about the Epstein stuff. Or you know, I wouldn't, I would not be surprised if the Russians have in-depth intelligence resources that know everything about what happened with that, and he could he could try to leverage that. Um, We'll see, I guess. Colonel Conrad. Well, a couple of things. First, the Russians don't do anything without some type of deception plan. And so we'll be focused in one direction based on a couple of comments from Putin. And he'll use that to his advantage, whatever agenda he's supporting uh, in a misdirecting kind of way. So he, he loves to mess with the Western media, the Western intel sources when it comes to his own personal health, uh, imitating someone with Parkinson's as he did, it, I think it was two years ago, rather overtly. And uh, people were all talking about his imminent demise. And then they, he's talking about this advanced cancer threat and so on. I believe that the guy's ill like that when he's in his grave and not, not, not until. So I think Putin will, is crafty enough that uh as both troop and colonel johnson said he'll he'll have an agenda he'll take advantage of of having the pulpit so to speak um i think personally that he will try to put the onus of um coming to the table and uh let's just say i think he will be making an effort for the world to seem as if he's wanting to sit down and negotiate and work out some kind of an agreement to uh, resolve the Ukrainian situation. And I think he'll put the onus of, of that on us. And I think part of that will be dovetailed into um, pumping up the whole BRICS uh, scenario and, and uh, playing for the cameras to the people on the other side of the planet so that they think they're joining a winner when they join the BRICS uh, uh, coalition. And uh, 
I think he'll I think he'll take a look at, at several different lines of effort where he can he can bring uh, good things, good propaganda to light for those efforts um, and support what he considers his side. I'm I'm anxious to see what he does in terms of anything with with uh, the United States and the West and pedophilia and all of the misogynistic, uh, heinous aspects of our society that, that he rightfully points out, you know, we, we engage in on a daily basis. And, uh, and I think he'll use that as trying to achieve the moral high ground, so to speak, for what he perceives to be his side. So I think he'll leverage all of that at every turn. And I think he'll probably do it fairly deftly. I, I, well, I would agree with all that, and I would add to it that I don't think he's going to touch on. I, I think if he talks the pedophilia thing, it's going to be from a macro level because yeah. Tucker's never going to talk about that. Neither is Joe Rogan. Neither is Alex Jones. I mean, Alex Jones talks about it, but he never goes into detail like um, some of the others that have uh, on alt media, like me, that talk about it. And maybe he does, and I missed it which I'm, I'm fine being corrected, but I don't see any of them talking about the real issues. I see them talking this, and, I, and I, he's absolutely going to um, pimp the mainstream media, the left, and the DC crowd, and the neocons. He's going to do that in a number of ways. First, he's going to talk about a negotiated peace, which he doesn't sincerely mean. Number two, he's going to talk about and the, the, the draft and ramping up to war and the fact that he's conscripted 300,000. He's definitively going to talk about his military capability from an EW perspective and drones. And he's probably going to talk. If he talks about biolabs, I don't think it's going to be earth shaking. I don't see anything earth shaking coming out of this because, number one, none of them are talking about the issues that need to be disclosed to the public. And even if he does, you're right. The, the, and all the left is going to go after this as Tucker is a, is a traitor, blah, blah, blah. But I, I got to go back to something you said, True, because you're right. Not only is, is, are all these activists and liberal pundits, not only are they all Oompa Loompas and butt ugly, but most of them are just, they look like Oompa Loompas and you get what you pay for. So there's, to me, I, I, I can't get past the fact that most of them make themselves look completely unattractive to anything, even animals. And they want to tell us how we're supposed to think and what we're supposed to believe in. So uh, he's, I, I can see Putin going after that in some way, shape or form, because he loves to poke the bear that way. But I don't see this being an earth changing event. I see this being an interview that draws a lot of attention away from the things that we should be paying. Um, we should be paying attention to. And one of them is we should be burning down DC with the people that were on the Epstein airplane and went to the Island. And we should be burning down Hollywood and we should be burning down the establishment. Anybody who went to the Island needs to be outed to the public and they need to answer for that in a criminal court. And more importantly, none of them are talking about the fact that um, Mossad ran that operation. And that, to me, none of them are going to say it. 
I mean, they're just not going to say it. And that's what needs to happen. But I want to circle back to something that all of you have alluded to. And that is, I look at who, who Tucker Carlson has interviewed in the past two months. I look at who Tucker Carlson has been communicating with. I look at who's been communicating with Alex Jones and all that's right out of the Flynn camp. So you can bet there's going to be some tacit or overt statement about election interference. That's going to, that'll be probably within the first hour. So I can't help but think that that's going to show up. Steve, can uh, I say anything that occurred to me? Sure. I, I was thinking, you know, I think the most obvious thing that's going to come out of the Putin interview that is probably causing the most panic is for the deep state that's used to being able to script everything on the uh, mainstream media is that to the average American, if anyone sees this interview, which, you know, the fact that Tucker's doing it is going to bring tons of more viewers to impudent speech than would ever be present otherwise. It, I think the biggest thing is going to be the fact that Putin is going to come across as a very reasonable, intelligent, um, wise, you know, spokesman for his country as a leader. And the comparison to the average American who's never seen him speak is going to be like, oh, my God, this guy blows away Biden. You know, our government is a joke. In comparison, yeah, that, that's a great point, Bruce. Because then they're going to see Biden's going to respond to it. Ah, dark uh, poopy pants. Give me a yeah. juice box. I think that's going to be the biggest point. I think that's that's probably what's got the deep state more scared than anything. Is not it's specifically what Putin's going to say, but just his image. I mean, he's just going to destroy anything coming out of D.C. in terms of legitimacy or respectability. I don't know. That's I take that for granted. I, 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 you know, and that's a great point because I took that for granted that he's going to upstage everybody in DC, including poopy pants, but he's already said, and he's going to, you know, he's going to say it tomorrow night that number one, Biden's not running the show. He's already said it. I can't wait for him to say that. And you know, the other right. side of that too, is that um, I think that this, if I'm looking at order of battle, in order for, for World War III to have any kind of legitimacy, this has to happen. And that's that's why I think it's that's why I think it's happening. Because look, you can't tell me that the CIA is not paying attention and NSA is not listening to what Tucker's doing right now. You cannot tell me that. You cannot tell me that they did not they did not know he was going to Russia. They could have stopped him before he left his house. And trust me when I say this, that if you're doing something that the establishment doesn't want to happen, they know it a long time before you ever do it. And they will meet you at your door and tell you to stand down. I'm surprised. I'm not surprised that this is happening. I'm surprised that it's getting as much airplay as it's getting. But again, this is a good show. And if there's anything I know about Trump is that he's he is an entertainer and he knows how to put on a show. And here's a, here's another thing that I want everybody to, to clue into. Go listen to all the talking heads that are in the Trump orbit. 
Go listen to what they're saying right now. They're all changed their tune. Every single one of them has said there's a counterpunch coming. There's a counterpunch coming. There's a big thing coming. It's all scripted, folks. All of this is scripted. And what it does is it adds legitimacy to World War III, adds legitimacy to, to rebuilding trust in not just the nation, but rebuilding trust. And what was the Davos World Economic Forum theme this year? Rebuilding trust. You don't think that all this is scripted? And remember, all the Silicon Valley elite all go to Jackson Hole every year and have their little powwow. What was their, what was their theme last year? Go look it up. Go look at what Eric Schmidt's doing right now, what Eric Schmidt is coordinating when it comes to Section 230, when it comes to doing any kind of censorship, and what he's doing to modernize the technology of the government. These are not coincidences. These are all tied together to rebuild a narrative, and this is just one of those flashbulb moments. Again, what does this all come back to? It comes back to narrative, to generate emotion, to keep you off balance and keep you hijacked so they can manipulate you. If you step away from the hype, the emotion, and the BS of this interview, I guarantee you, you're going to see some pieces fall together tomorrow. And it's, why would they release this on a Thursday at 6 p.m.? What significance is that? None of these things are by coincidence. None of them. And when you step away from all of the social media, the hype, the BS, and the noise, you see very, very clearly that this is a dissemination and a controlled release. That's what this is. And it is by design. By who? I don't know. I'm done trying to, trying to figure that out. And most importantly, I don't care about the Olympics. It's like the election. I don't care about it. We're not getting that far. This, look, I'm going to say this again, Troop. You can disagree with me all you want. We're not getting to the election. They can't allow an election to happen when they know that the public is not going to buy into it anyway. They have to come up with some flashbulb, some critical moment so that they can change the narrative and declare martial law or declare that they're not going to do elections or whatever the case may be. They need some kind of a flashbulb moment. They are not going to allow that to happen. They do, but I don't think so. The phases of grief, I'm a efficiency type of guy. So I only have three phases of grief and that's shock, revenge, closure. So we need to get ready for the election, whether they pull any shit or not, because if we're not ready for the election and it does come and we don't have anybody registered to vote. I'm not saying that true. That's not what I'm saying. They are definitely going to try to do something to control it. And there, I mean, we have, we have dozens of lawsuits out there with respect to mail-in voting and, um, you know, putting barcodes on ballots and all these other, what, what I call concession measures. Uh, it's a concession measure because we want one day, one vote, no machines, hand count. That's it. You know, hands down, return to precinct voting. And I, I get in arguments with people on their own side of the fence because we're like, no, uh, trooper, you know, we're good. You know, we're going to, we're going to hold our arms closed and we're not going to do anything because we don't want mail-in 
voting. So I'm just not going to vote, you know, whatever. And I mean, people are being asinine. We're going to have to we're going to have to get through this with what capability and limitations that we have and they get to the other side. Now, what you're saying is they know they're going to lose their ass when nobody voted for nobody. Right. Or what was that in Nevada when when more people voted for none of these candidates than all the other three candidates combined and two of the other ones weren't even in the race in uh, Nevada, uh, Nikki Haley. It, it was it sent a message. It's like Trump doesn't even need to be on the ballot in order to win. So no, it sends the message that we're <laughs> we're not playing the game anymore. We're not going along with the narrative. We're not going along with the elite. We hate whoever you put in front of us. We're not going to accept another blatant theft of our election. We're going to vote the way we vote. You accept it or civil war. That's what that message is. And most importantly, that's the message to the elite and the left. You better wake up because the barbarians are at the gates and we're done. We're not playing the game anymore. You would think that Stephen Richer and Bill Gates and the rest of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors would have heard that on November 8th of 2022. These people don't realize that when this flashbulb moment occurs, there is no place on this planet that they're going to be able to hide. No place. And this is this is what I say they're divorced from reality because this message alone says if you don't get on the right side of history and fix this before the election, if it happens, you steal it again, civil war. That's what this message is. We should, this is, I don't, I was going to talk about this, so I'm glad you, you brought it up. That is such a loud message to the elite. And none of them heard it. Not one of them. None of them heard it and you would be shocked and i'm glad you brought it up true we should all be preparing as business as usual to go and participate and do our civic duty in the election however comma i don't they are in the trunk there i don't think we're going to get there and i don't think we're going to get there because the elite are running out of moves and they're out of new ideas and because of that and because of this message, I I absolutely am thrilled that Nikki Haley got the middle finger from an entire state because she's yet another soulless Indian that they want to put in place like they did in Scotland, in Ireland, and in the UK. And look at what those guys are saying. I mean, the prime minister of the UK literally said last week that the, the shot is safe and effective. Everyone knows that's BS. Everyone. But yet here we are yet again watching them try to do the same thing they've done in Europe and install the same kind of soulless idiot into, into a position of power. And now it's not selling. And this is us telling them unequivocally, you're not selling this no matter how many different flavors you put on this. This turd will not sell. That's what that's what I heard yesterday. Call me crazy. There's been some successes and some continued failures in the global political stage. The Dutch farmers and those in Belgium and France have uh, achieved armistice level, I guess, with the government as far as them rolling back some of their 
created restrictions on uh, fuel consumption, fertilizer utilization, this bullshit nitrogen uh, metric that, they, that they're trying to achieve. And they, uh, they got active. They became active participants and they put that. So, it, so what happened was they, the, the establishment blinked. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to, the, what they're going to do is they're going to try to attack them from a different angle. But Absolutely. They did, I was they just did blink. Say. And they blinked and people are mad about it. And the stuff that they tried to achieve, they couldn't push the COVID narrative, the extra eight months that they needed. And elections are coming up. And people now, because of the United States and because of uh, Brazil, they know that elections are rigged. So they got their radar up, their eyes open, and their guns in the, in the trunk. So they're going to have a real hard time. And I think Nikki Haley, on her journey right now, getting pretty much zero delicate, uh, you know, votes is a good, a good bellwether for, for how this is going to go. All of these different countries, the people are just as pissed off as we are. They're really mad. And they went, you know, I mean, we were voting for pensions and we were voting for our super long holidays that we take that Americans don't know, you know, we Americans work themselves to death and then they'll, they'll work themselves into a, an early grave and an early death grave to, to take the one week that they might have in vacation to spend $8,000 at Disneyland to have a miserable time. And now they're over that. Well, everybody in Europe, I mean, they take what four vacations a year and some of them are like up, up to a month. And that's what they were voting for in their socialist construct of, of utopia. And now they realize, and this is the greatest thing that I read this week is we have all of this talk about, oh, well, you know, you came and you killed the indigenous people. The, the white man came and they wiped out the Indians. And I see these things where people have the, what, what indigenous land that, that they're living on or whatever this guilt uh, signaling is. Well, somebody made the comment that all of these people from North Africa that are invading Europe are literally invading the indigenous lands of those people. And it, and it is their right and their birthright to push them back. It doesn't matter what country they're in. They're the indigenous people of those lands of Europe and they have to push back. And I think that the indigenous people who are living on those lands right now, that are living under this absolute tyranny that are seeing exactly what this globalist agenda is. And they're seeing it front and center with Canada, the United States, what they, what they did in Brazil. And they're seeing the very real possibility of their societies turning away from a liberal society to an authoritarian state like China. Um, they're going to be pushing back against their, their own people and they're going to be voting for conservatives. And that is going to have some consequences. I think down the road, we're going to see riots because if they do get a conservative majority in a lot of these governments, the conservatives are going to do what conservatives do and they're going to start making cuts to stuff. And so there's going to be a pendulum swinging back the other way, but going into it, going into these next elections, I think that there's going to be a transformative shift towards uh, con conservatism uh, in in multiple different countries, and then and then from that we'll go into our next phase of the crisis, which will be riots and you know uh, people that are mad because the shit fairy went away. But it's it's coming, and they know they're losing the narrative. So yeah, I mean this war, uh, all of the environmental damage that these so-called green you know green energy people, these globalists are, are are impacting on the environment with these wars and you know with everything, they're they're going to do whatever they can do to try to avoid literally being replaced by the people, which is, which is coming. It's coming. So we'll see what they're going to do before that happens, but it's coming. I agree. And that's, that's a good point. Any comments from either Colonel Conrad or Colonel Johnson? I had, I had one. I know you think Eagle Pass was noise, but the rumors that we heard coming out about supposedly there was inner, you know, 
arguments within the NSA about using AI to look at people's faces or whatever at Eagle Pass. The other things that we were hearing on the InfoWars coverage was like that they were being told that the Border Patrol personnel fully supported, you know, the convoy and everything like that. I thought that was the most significant news from the whole thing was to hear you know, the beginnings of rumblings within the ranks of people saying, hey, uh, we don't support what's being done anymore. And the thing that occurs to me, I, I don't know if how likely I think civil war is um, right away. I think that the Democrats would be more likely to try to create an artificial civil war to create the battlefield and control the battlefield that they want to have happen. But the, the fact that there's starting to be what appears to be some rumblings within the infrastructure of the Border Patrol, the NSA, whatever, I, I think, you know, what the elites, the, the D.C. people have to worry about is that they're going to eventually face mutinies of at some level within their control structure, you know, down at the lower level. And... Perhaps that might happen before civilians ever get to the point of like, hey, let's have a civil war. I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking out loud. No, you're onto something. Colonel Conrad, I know you've you probably got some thoughts on this, too. So I'll let you go first. Colonel Conrad, are you having a lovely conversation with yourself on mute? Well, while he's trying to get unmuted, you're onto something because something I said early on, almost four years ago now, was their arrogance will be their undoing, and you're seeing part of that taking place right now. You're right; there is a there is a mutiny brewing within DHS, within the Border Patrol, within uh, several factions of the government, and part of it is. When you ask people to burn the bridge they're standing on, at some point it's going to resonate with them that burning the bridge they're standing on means it's going to have repercussions with not just not just the people that they're supposed to be supporting, but with the people that they care about and respect. And at some point, people will opt out of that. Whatever that mechanism is or that flashpoint is, doesn't matter. But at some point, everybody that's downstream from the decision makers that are divorced from reality will have that moment. And when you have that moment, you say, I've done enough of this. I'm not doing anymore. And that's where the system will break down. You're already seeing people openly saying on social media, I'm not paying my taxes this year. I'm not giving these people any more money. You're seeing that groundswell starting to grow. You're seeing people say that if they do X, I'm going to stop working completely. I'm not doing anything and I will barter for everything I need. You're seeing people say in social media that if they go after my neighbor for not paying his taxes, I'm going to go over there and defend his house. You're seeing that same playing out out loud right now, which is something we hadn't heard about. We hadn't heard or seen for the last 24 months. But there's a there's another key narrative that's developing right now that people are they're trying and, and Joe Rogan was talking about this today that where he thinks we're a heartbeat away from people being okay with a minor attractive persons. No, we're not. Just like we're not we're not a, a moment away from people people being okay with cannibalism. 
that is a concoction of the narrative and influencing operations that they're trying to push down our throats because these people are into that. And you're, you're seeing that this, and I want to go back to the, the primary in Nevada. The reason why that's such a salient point is that shows you that the public is throwing off the narratives and all the influencing operations that are being pushed across the country now. And you're seeing pockets of violence in the big cities. That's always That was always going to happen because they're always going to be flashpoints in cities with densely populated areas. It's a fact of nature. You're not going to be able to change that. But what you're not hearing about and what you are seeing is that you're seeing people move away from the cities and move to rural areas now in record numbers. You're also seeing people moving back to Christianity, which you don't hear about, you know, and I'm not talking about the big mega churches. I think those are going to die because people are tired of the show. They want to get back to a faith-based um, type of religion that we had years and years ago, which is community-based. on that for 20 minutes, Steve. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think people are tired of the, the big mega churches and that, that noise level. But you're also, you're also seeing, and these are quiet movements that are happening because that's what conservatives do. The other thing you're seeing right now is, does any, has anybody seen the price of ammo in the last two weeks? The price of ammo has gone up exponentially. And why I bring that up is that tells me that people are buying armed weapons and ammo in record numbers. You're not hearing that. Just like the California law requiring people to show ID to buy and purchase ammo was overturned last week. The, the, the um, pistol race ban was overturned. You don't hear any of that. Do you know why the pistol brace ban was overturned? Number one, it was unconstitutional. But number two, 40 million Americans did not register their weapon. They were like, yeah, we're not doing that. Sorry, mass noncompliance. You're starting to see the groundwork laid for mass noncompliance. What was the one thing I said we do? The next order of battle, full stop. Full stop on everything. We bring the whole system. Do you know? The Europeans blinked for one reason and one reason only, because the farmers brought the city of Paris and Brussels and Berlin to a complete stop, completely shut down the city. That's what needs to happen here. And I, if you're listening to this right now, you need to ask yourself one question. What is that one thing? that's going to get you to leave your house and go support other people that are going to bring this country to full stop when we have to. Are you going to do it? Because that's the line in the sand. It's not going to be picking up weapons. It's going to be when are you going to leave your house and go support a movement that brings the big cities, most importantly, Washington, D.C., to a complete halt. The French were ripping up roads. They're all in. That that should tell you that the pendulum's shifting the other way. But your troop was right. The Europeans are going to do exactly what they do here. They're just going to they're just going to come at it in some more insidious and evil way 
and they're going to pay lip service to it, just like they did with the Bureau of, of Misinformation. They're just going to rebrand it under something else and use another version of the of this uh, Section 230 of the Constitution to to enforce it somewhere else under a dif different agency. But I don't think the Europeans are going to play along this time. I think they're paying attention. And if they don't get exactly what they want, they're going to drive the entire city to starvation, which is what we, which is what we're going to have to do. And I don't think Americans are prepared to do it yet. But that's the next order of battle. That literally is going to be the next order of battle. It's not going to be kinetic. It's going to be drive the entire country to full stop. The ports, the roads, the cities, all of it, full stop. Dave, I, I think you're off mute. I think I heard you off mute. Okay, maybe not. Well, so. can I say something there, Steve? You know, one thing I've been trying to push, I mean, this is a small, very small thing, but what I've been starting to do in my own personal, you know, purchases and things when I work with people like whether it's uh, auto mechanics or meat processors or whatever, is that I offer them, I'm like, look at if you'd like, I'll pay you in silver coins. And I feel like that's a way that people could start rebelling and throwing you know, sand into the gears of the system is to just start doing little things like that everywhere they can in the economy. Um, you know, even uh, boxes of ammo, Bruce, a little, little 20, 20 round yes. box of ammo. We had a, a white elephant uh, Christmas party at our, our legislative district party. And, okay. you know, everybody had good gifts, $20 gifts on average. And there was like just cool stuff. That one little twenty-round box of two-two-three cartridges got got swapped out. Like that, I think there's a maximum of five. Like you can steal a gift and then you have to go get another one. Um, but it, it it was in high demand. Just one. So what would be the dollar equivalent of a twenty-round box of, you know, of just small rifle cartridges? That's like between a twenty and fifty-dollar bill, depending on ammo availability. So, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, more than silver coins, but definitely a bartering for sure. Yeah, that's so establishing an alternate currency and an alternate economy is also part of this gig, right? Because it's fights against the social scoring system and the digital currency, which they're they're trying desperately to roll out at the same time. I I think there's I think there's a number, and we're gonna see a spike in silver this year. It's that that's already starting to that's already starting to uh, gain momentum too. But I have my reservations about how real that is right now because of the fact that um, the markets are so heavily manipulated by JP Morgan and by um, other entities in the financial markets. So I'm not, I'm not as um, hopeful that that will become uh, an alternate currency, but it, it would be great if it was. So I'm not making a prediction on silver price jungle. Sorry. I, Silver should be two hundred bucks, two hundred bucks an ounce right now, at a minimum, because of the fact that it's a production metal, and they've oversold all of the the futures. They've oversold all of the paper, just like they have with gold. So, I, I anyway, I, I'm not making a prediction on price, but we're going to see it. We're going to see it move up. We're seeing it move up. So, all right, let's get to closing comments because we're at two hours plus. Um, 
Dave, are you back? Or are you still delinquent, Dave? I think Dave's still delinquent, Dave. Troop, let's start with you. Closing comments. Oh, I saw you on the Big Meg, and I took a picture of our what we see when we're doing the roundtable. I wanted to kind of give props to those other more professional shows. So Gray Matters, the Amber May show, I was on there last week. You see that interview in a couple of weeks. The Big Meg, all these guys have a, uh, I don't know what you call them, but the, the, the tech guy, you know, the tech guy's in charge of everything, make everything run right. And the other thing is, uh, who's that guy, Sean, on YouTube that has like six-hour deals? Um, I know he has a technical team, but you don't you don't see it. But they kind of let the conversation go wherever they want. I've got a lot of feedback on this show, where we we don't come into this with an agenda. We Steve might say, "Hey, we're going to talk about Russia or whatever, some general thing like that," but we don't have time topics. We don't switch. Uh, we could bring up stuff on the show whenever we want. It's not edited. It's like how I do my videos on the Trooper channel, record, shit post. That's it. That's a whole editing process. So I think people see that uh, for what it is. It's, it's a little it's a little more raw, It's it's but it's really just us talking and sharing our experience. So the one thing I learned when I was on the Amber May show, and you probably learned on the, on the Big Meg show, I actually saw them, is they they have like seven topics they want you to talk about and they have seven minutes per topic and they have to take a commercial break and the show can't go more than an hour so you might be able to go five or seven minutes over but they're going to edit out five to seven minutes of it because they're syndicated and they have to stay within that the brackets of time and what i like about about the round table is we, we're not beholden to that at all we don't have any agenda we obviously don't have any technical um you know controls but it's what what you're hearing is isn't it isn't scripted and it isn't designed to get you to arrive at some conclusion of our narrative or whatever it's just straight up uh what you know what it is and as steve said the the line's open for people that you know can contribute within the genre of analyzing political events based on experience and and not who's uh sponsoring us and so that's i think where we where we've been pretty successful with this. And of course, because of that, we get a lot of, a lot of hate mail too, but I, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, always pretty excited to, to do this on Wednesday night. And, and, and for specifically that reason, as I was trying to find that one show that I would listen to where it seemed legitimate, it didn't seem contrived and scripted. So, you know, this is, this is what you get when you don't have any, any of that. Bruce. Um, I just one thing I wanted to bring up that we kind of almost touched on. You got on it on one of your rants, Steve, um, that I thought was really pertinent. And as far as a closing comment, I think that helps us think about the world we're in going forwards is I was talking to a good buddy who's an army, uh, ex-army helicopter pilot and an airline pilot today. And we were talking all about basically the uh, the the you know, the fact that the United States, the we that Western civilization is under attack by a combination of the Chinese and the World Economic Forum people. And that, you know, the Chinese are not insane. They are very thorough, methodical. We talked about that earlier. They they have a plan to dominate as much of the world as they can, I believe. And I think most of us think that. The WEF, on the other hand, um, as we're seeing how 
their stuff is falling apart in Europe, like you guys just talked about. They, if you really think about it, the policies of the WEF, whether they're, you know, some people could say they're being backed by the Zionists, backed by Kazarian Mafia, whatever. They're they're basically insane. They 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 the hubris that they've displayed that you've talked about, Steve, is is a reflection of like their insanity. And we basically have the WEF folks trying to remake Western civilization into some kind of, you know, uh, WeChat controlled dictatorship of the, you know, greens or whatever you want to call it. And the insanity is that they think they can pull this off. And we see how it's falling apart in Europe. We see the rumblings of discontent within the Border Patrol, maybe the NSA, you know, all of us. They they absolutely do not have the majority of the populace in any Western country that really supports them. Yet they continue to persist in their goals and push forward with their agenda. And I think this really reflects their insanity. And the I think this really it just occurred to me while you guys were talking. But the key thing is it reflects why they're going to lose control because they're so insane. And as we go forward, I think that people should be preparing for trouble and instability and craziness. But I think there's also a glimmer of hope in this in that ultimately their plans are so insane, they're going to fall apart. And the question is just how bad is it going to be? And that's why we all need to keep preparing, you know, and doing all the things you guys hammer on every day about knowing your you know the people in your local area getting prepared with food ammo firearms combat capabilities everything but i think the key is we got to focus on making that collapse of their system happen quicker and 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 maybe the best thing we can all do is like the going galt kind of scenarios that you guys have talked about that's that's my uh, closing comments I'll try uh, Colonel Conrad one more time. Dave, are you back? Are you not back? He must be having, he must be having, or he must be gone. One of the two. Hey, Dave, uh, you there? Yeah, hopefully everything's okay. You guys remember the Bob Newhart show? Hi, Bob. <laughs> yeah. One of uh, one of one of your users said, uh, "I'm going to do a bong hit every time Colonel Murray goes on on a rage." <laughs> And you're going to be really high. You better put some oh, blunts man. in rotation, my friend, because you're going to be super high. Yeah, you're going to be Snoop Dogg high after after one of my shows, pal. It just wouldn't just be know. like a normal Bob Newhart where you, you can only drink so many shots in an hour when somebody says, hi, Bob, we can go for like two or three hours. You'd be passed out and wake up and <laughs> still have 15 <laughs> minutes of the show left. Yep. I was thinking more day, of the I was thinking more of the Cheech and Chong. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Dave's Dave, not home. Dave's <laughs> not here. <Yeah. laughs> That's funny, man. I remember that. that. That bit was good. So now it's disappearing Dave instead of delinquent Dave. Um, I'm just going to close with this tonight. Don't let the emotion from all of these news stories and all of the the the, the subterfuge don't let that dictate how you respond. 
you know, one of the things that that you hear in counseling a lot is that you can't control other people. You can only control how you react to it. I keep telling everybody the same thing I'm going to say right now. You got to cut the fear out of this. You got to cut the emotion out of this. And you got to look at this objectively around what does this have to do with the big picture? Because there's a lot of things we should be talking about right now. And, and they keep distracting the public away from the bigger narratives. Look at how much airtime Taylor Swift is getting right now. She has absolutely no bearing on anything other than noise for the younger generations or people that have nothing better to do with themselves. What, what really matters right now is that, number one, we make human connections and we step away from technology and do not allow them to dictate how we live our lives through technology. Number two, and most importantly, those human connections we make right now are going to pay huge dividends when the system breaks down because you're meeting people that either have skills or do not have skills that you can add to your sphere of influence to increase your line of sight. Those things matter right now. Who, you know, who Taylor Swift is dating, what game she goes to has no bearing on anything in our society. It's just white noise. And she's not that talented anyway. The at the end of the ass. day, at the end of the day, here's what matters. What matters is we have a we have a, a, a very small window left before the event horizon and the event happens. Whatever that event is, we're close to the event horizon. There's a lot of hope right now because you're seeing things bubble to the surface that they can't control. And I'll tell you, there's spirit here helping us. I say that for a variety of reasons. But the one thing I say, the reason I say that is that everything in my being is telling me that when we come out of this, we're going to be a stronger country, a stronger people, and a stronger planet. And I don't know why I say that, but I I see that. And I still have faith and the American people, even if they don't have a faith in themselves. Because when the chips are down, people come together to help one another. And we're going to see that happen. We're seeing that happen in Europe. We will see that happen here. And when it does happen, people are going to be shocked that people have humanity. There's going to be some that don't, but there's going to be a lot that do. And that's the piece that most people overlook all the time. I've said before, I'll say it again, the most powerful tool in our toolkit is empathy. That is what's going to carry us through this. That's what carried us through World War II. It's what carried us through all the other challenges to our country over the past 100 years. And now we're on the precipice of the event horizon that is going to shape this planet forever. And all we're asking you to do is to start being prepared the best way you can. I'm telling you from an information warfare perspective to step away from the emotion, stop being scared. These people aren't gonna win. They don't have the numbers. They don't have the cultural narrative. They don't have the groundswell. They don't have the trust of the public and they don't have spirit on their side. We have the moral high ground. 
And that moral high ground is what should bond all of us together. I'm not giving up on our beliefs and you shouldn't either. So if you do anything this week, go make a human connection. God bless everyone. Another good round table. We'll be back. I'll be back Monday, a normal time, four o'clock Pacific, five o'clock Arizona racist time, seven o'clock Eastern. If you, if you like the show, hit the follow button because the follow button will tell you when the new shows come out. It will also help us know if Rumble is throttling the number of followers, if Rumble is actually throttling the views, which I think they are. But most importantly, the more follows we get, the more the more likes we get on videos, the more people will see it across the planet. And as always, one team, one fight. Good night, everyone. Hurrah. Hoo-ah. <laughs>